So if you've, if you've ever traveled in, uh, on I-20, really in either direction, east or west, you've surely at some point seen the billboards for a place called Bucky's. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a Bucky's. Some of us, many, oh golly, many of us, okay. Well, if you haven't, listen, it's an enormous, slightly overrated gas station. That's what we're talking about here, okay? But the thing about Bucky's is you start to see the signs while you're still a long way off. You might see a sign that says Bucky's 180 miles. I mean, we're talking about a gas station in another state. And yet I'm, I'm looking back in the car telling my family, if you've got to go to the bathroom, boys, you've got to hold it because we're not stopping until we get to Bucky's in Louisiana or Texas or wherever it is, right? Uh, see, it's an amazing what a sign like that can do. It doesn't just give you direction. It sets expectation. You're seeing the promise of something great that is to come, right? And forgive me a little bit of silliness here, but none of us, if we saw the Bucky sign, you wouldn't stop there, would you? Wouldn't that be an odd thing to do? You don't stop at the sign because that would be to miss the purpose of the sign. The sign simply points you to the thing itself. That's where you stop. Well, last week in Acts chapter 3, Pastor Evan preached on the healing of a man who was lame from birth. He was born paralyzed. And as a quick recap, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And this paralyzed man had been laid at the entrance to the gate, seeking charity from those who were entering into worship. Well, Peter fixes his gaze on this man and he says, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say to you, stand and walk. And seizing him by the hand, they raised him up. And this man began walking and leaping and praising God throughout the temple. Well, naturally, everybody is seeing this man leaping and praising the Lord. And they're filled with wonder. How is this possible? And just as we saw back in chapter 2 with the miracle of the languages, so here again, it's a miracle of healing that provides a platform, an opportunity for Peter to stand up in front of a great crowd of people and explain to them what this means. And the first thing Peter says is, don't look at us. Don't look at John and me as if we're anything great. This is the miraculous work of Jesus the same Jesus you denied and crucified. Peter says to these Jews there in Jerusalem, but God raised him from the dead. And it is by faith in Jesus' name that this man now stands healed before you. In other words, this man's healing is certainly a blessing to him, but even more, it's a sign for y'all. It's a sign for everybody pointing us to something greater. Peter doesn't stop at the sign. Peter doesn't just marvel at the man's healing. He acknowledges it as a sign of something for everybody to experience in a greater way than they can possibly imagine. The sign is meant to point them to the person of Christ. Or we could say it like this. The healing is meant to point us to the healer, to the Savior, Jesus. And that's where we pick up this morning. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Remember, Peter has just accused the crowd of denying and crucifying Jesus. Verse 17. And now, brethren, 
I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, what Peter says here is very important, both for the crowd in that present moment, but also for us. He says, when you denied and crucified Jesus, I know you acted in ignorance, meaning they did not grasp and recognize who Jesus really was. And this is a teaching in the Scripture. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if the rulers there in Jerusalem had understood the wisdom of God, if they had understood the gospel, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Even from the cross, very famously, remember what Jesus cried out to the Father? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's ignorance at play in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Now that kind of seems to soften the blow maybe a little bit for the crowd, a, a sigh of relief perhaps for them, but that would be to miss the point. Peter's point is not, you acted in ignorance and therefore you're off the hook. Peter's point is in verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You were ignorant, Peter says. True. The Romans were cruel and evil. Judas was greedy. Pontius Pilate was cowardly. The high priest was deceitful. All true. But the suffering and death of Jesus was God's predetermined plan, which God fulfilled through the hands of ignorant and evil men. And so, y'all, at one level, we may look at the cross as a great tragedy brought about by human ignorance. If they had just had known better, it would have never happened. I mean, that's one way to look at the cross. But Peter says, no. The cross is God's great triumph brought about through His divine providence. The ignorance of evil people only contributed to the plan that God had made far in advance. And if we understand what that means, that, that their ignorance to condemn Him and crucify Him was part of God's ultimate plan to bring salvation to the world. Think about this. Jesus, when He suffered at the hands of sinners, He was suffering in the place of sinners so that he might save sinners. What would have been and should have been the great tragedy of human history is ultimately the great triumph of God and our victory as well. And we see that now as Peter turns to the response in verse 19. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Verse 19, Therefore, Peter says to the crowd, Repent, and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The people's ignorance does not absolve them of their guilt. They must repent and turn back to God. What Peter is saying to the crowd, recognize your sin Confess your great need and turn your heart to the Lord for His 
salvation. And that is for them, and it's also for us, every single one of us. This is the call of salvation. That God has sent His Son to seek and to save that which is lost. And when a person, any person, turns to Him in repentance and faith, sorrow and confession over our sin and guilt, and trust in Jesus Christ to save us. When that happens, y'all, the most amazing thing takes place. We saw this already in chapter 2. Peter preaches to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. We see it again right here in chapter 3. What happens when people repent and turn to Christ? We get the exact opposite of all that we expect and deserve. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So what does it mean to have your sins wiped away? Or maybe your Bible says blotted out. It means your sins are removed from you entirely as if they never happened in the first place. It means uh, in the Psalms we're told that as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. An incalculable difference from one to the other. That's how far away our sins are now by God's grace. What that means for us is there's no residue. There's no stain left behind. It's not mostly clean and forgiven. No, it's entirely removed, wiped away. How is that possible? Because when you and I forgive someone, that's a noble thing, but we never forget. The stain, the sting, the hurt is always there. How is it that God can remove our sins entirely? The Apostle Paul tells a lot of places in the Bible I could turn here. Let me give you Colossians 2, where Paul tells it this way. Paul says, we have the forgiveness of sins because Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Did Jesus nail a document to the cross? What was nailed to the cross? His body. And so what is Paul talking about? There's no, there's no certificate. What Paul is saying here, the image is so rich and wonderful that our sin debt, which would otherwise condemn us, has been canceled out and taken away at the cross because at the cross, Jesus bore our sins in His own body. Jesus took our condemnation for us, your sin and mine, our sins were accounted to Him as if He had committed them. He was held liable and punishable for our sins. He served as the perfect sacrifice in our place. That's how the certificate of debt is nailed to the cross and put away once and for all. And y'all, I want you to think about now in the, in the context of Acts 3 just how powerful this forgiveness really is. So powerful that the very people, present tense here, the very people who had condemned Jesus to die may now turn to the same Jesus, the risen Jesus, and have all their sins wiped away, chiefly the sin 
of His condemnation at their hands. That should tell us something about the power and the extent of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Y'all, there is no sin. Not that sin in Acts 3. No sin in your life so great that Jesus cannot and will not forgive you by His mercy. He has paid your debt and canceled it forever. It cannot be brought back upon you. God will not remind you of it. And y'all, in the strangest way, I don't understand how this works, but the promise of God is our lawless deeds He will remember no more. That's the promise for anyone who turns to Jesus Christ in faith. We could stop here, but there's more. Salvation, Peter says, is not only forgiveness, which would be enough, but salvation is also a new life. Not just the canceling out of debt and God brings us back to zero and we get a do-over. I hope you know that would do us no good. We don't just, we're not just brought back to zero here. We receive an outpouring of grace, a new life that God grants us by the Spirit. So look again at verse 19. That, there, that our sins are wiped away, Peter says, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, and this is, I think, a reference to the outpouring of God's Spirit on those who believe. But again, what Peter is saying here is connected to a sign. He's speaking something that's showing us a greater reality that perhaps we can't yet see. Y'all, I want you to recall, uh, because Evan preached it last week, it may not be as fresh on our minds, but the whole context of this sermon is a miracle. It's the healing of the lame man. And Peter is now referencing that healing in an effort to show the people the healer, Jesus, the Savior. And Luke, who wrote Acts, Luke tells us two times in, in this chapter that this man, this formerly lame man, is going around the temple doing what? Leaping and praising God. He's leaping. Now, look with me at Isaiah chapter 35. If you're really fast, you can turn there. You don't have to. We'll put it on the screen. Isaiah 35, one of the great promises that God gives to Israel concerning the times of future redemption, what is to come by God's promise. And look at how God illustrates the salvation that He's going to bring. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Why do you think Luke mentions the lame man leaping twice? Probably so people like me with a Mississippi State education don't miss it. But y'all, you better believe that the the Jewish people in the crowd in that moment, you better believe they didn't miss it. Because this is the promise 
Isaiah 35, that they've been waiting on, not just their whole lives, but for centuries they've been waiting on the fulfillment of God's redemptive promise, His salvation. And so Peter is saying, here it is. It's happening right in front of your eyes. And the the image is so rich, the lame is leaping like a deer. And the scorched and thirsty ground, God says, will become springs of water. That which was dry and dead will be flooded with new life and blessing. That's not just a promise of, of renewed agriculture. That's a spiritual promise of God's grace to bring water in desert places. It's happening here, Peter says. This is how Jesus put it. As he looked ahead now in John chapter 7, Jesus said to the crowd, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Jesus, He forgives our sin. He wipes it away. But much more. Jesus makes us alive to God. He he, he sends His very Spirit to dwell within us, the presence of God with us and in us forever. Times of refreshing, Peter says, are coming from the presence of the Lord. This is what it means. God is making us new. The Scripture says you are a new creation and you have a new heart with which to love and obey Jesus. That's what happens when we receive Him by faith. What was once scorched earth, dry and dead, is now flowing like a river, living and fruitful, because grace has come to dwell in our hearts. You don't just get a cancellation of the bad stuff. You get the pouring out of all God's goodness. You get His face, both now and forever, by the power of His Spirit. Now, I want us to hold on to this. We're going to circle back to it at the end. The great promise of salvation. But Peter, because he's speaking specifically in this case to a Jewish audience, there are some threads that he's got to tie together for them. And y'all, I want, to, I want us to see this. We're Gentiles in this room. Um, we, we did not grow up with a rich heritage of uh, a Jewish life and culture and the Scripture in the same way that they did probably. But this is just as important for us to see as it would be for them. There are some questions that would have come to their minds as Peter is unfolding the plan of God and the sending of the Messiah. And so he's going to address some of those here for their sake and for ours. When God sends the Spirit, does this mean the end has come? Because that would have been their thought. These redemptive promises were a reflection of the end of all things. The Spirit would come and that would be it. Well, in verse 20, Peter answers that question with a yes, but a not yet. Look at verse 20 with me. Your sins will be wiped away. Times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. The Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. So Peter says, yes, the end has come in some sense, but not yet. And and y'all, we studied this last year in 1 John. We are right now, we are in what the Scripture calls the last days. The period of time between the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus 
and his glorious return, which has not yet come. We're in the last days, but the last days will only culminate at the return of Christ. And that's what Peter is saying here. We're entering into a time of salvation and refreshment, but the end is not yet. And God's plan and promise to bring Christ to, uh, back in the same way that he came, riding on the clouds in his glory, that day will come. God has already promised it in the prophets, but not yet. Okay. And speaking of the prophets, look now at verse 22. Peter invokes Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Now that, that's, y'all, that's a whole sermon in itself potentially. Let me try to zero in on what Peter's saying here. He says all the prophets. So that's, that's our Old Testament here. We've got the law and the prophets. All of the prophets, he says, have pointed ahead to one true prophet whom God will raise up. And this prophet will come from among his own kinsmen from within Israel. And he will be like Moses, one who delivers God's people from slavery and into God's promise. And through this prophet, the redemptive promises of God will find their fulfillment. All right. Now, I just put the ball on the tee for us here. Who is this one great true prophet that Peter is talking about, that Moses was talking about, that the prophets were pointing to? That's Jesus. I heard a whisper there. You got it right. The answer is always Jesus. Y'all have, have y'all been to Sunday school before? <laughs> Say it out loud. It's Jesus. And so this is what Peter is saying here. The prophet, the great one that, we're, that, that everything has been pointing to is Jesus. And so two things that Peter has in mind. One, Jesus is God's appointed Messiah. Make no mistake, you crucified Him, but God raised Him again to vindicate Him. This is what all of the law and the prophets have been pointing us to for centuries on end. It's Jesus. Every sign has been telling us it's Him. And He's come. But then secondly, Peter says, everything rises and falls on him. Hearkening now back to Moses. Moses said, God's going to raise up another prophet like me from among the people. Listen to him. Heed what he says. If you don't, you will experience death and destruction. If you do, there will be life and blessing. Jesus alone saves us. He is the only way we can come to God and experience life and communion with the Lord now and forever. God has raised him up for that purpose. And y'all, this should be welcome news for the crowd in Acts chapter 3, these faithful Jewish people. Because look at, look at verse 25 and how this sermon ends. It is you, Peter says, you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Again, that, that little paragraph could be a sermon all by itself, but, but y'all, here it is. God's plan to bring salvation to the world 
always centered around God's people Israel. It would be through Israel, the promise to Abraham was back in Genesis 12. From the very beginning, it was God's promise and plan to bless the whole world through his people. And more specifically, through Abraham's seed, the salvation of the world would come. And that is seed singular, not plural. That seed is a reference, Galatians 3, to Jesus Christ, the one who would be called the son of David, the lion of Judah. That is Jesus. And so Peter says of this Jewish Messiah, he has come to you first. It starts here in Jerusalem. It starts with his kinsmen. The Jews are the sons of the covenant. Now, y'all, the great open door for the Gentiles is going to come. We're going to see it most explicitly in Acts chapter 10. Don't worry. It's coming. But it doesn't start there. It starts here. He's come to you first. And so as Peter stands before his kinsmen, Jesus has come for the whole world. That's already become clear, yes, but it starts with you. God has sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And y'all, I know the focus here would appear to be primarily on the Jews and not on the Gentiles, but I want you to think more broadly here about the heart of God. Look at the heart of God. Jesus came to his own, John chapter 1, and yet his own did not receive him. Isn't that the sad story of the Gospels? That by and large, Jesus' own kinsmen rejected him and crucified him? And yet here still, this crucified and now risen Jesus holds his hands out open and wide, eager, eager to forgive and bless and redeem the very people who condemned him to the cross, the very people who had made themselves his enemies. He is now eager to receive them as his brothers and sisters. What kind of gracious God are we dealing with here? I mentioned earlier how a sign functions. A sign's purpose is not to terminate on itself, but to point us to something greater, to the fullness of what the sign can only describe and direct. And y'all, it's, it's, this is our case today in Acts chapter 3. It's the healing that points to the healer. The lame man leaping, that's a wonderful thing all by itself. But Peter insists that we see that as the fruit of a much greater grace. Not a physical healing for one person, but a kind of healing for those who are dead in their sins, a salvation for the world, for all people who would turn and receive Him. The times of refreshing have come, Peter says. Salvation is here because God has raised up His servant Jesus and has sent Him to bless you. Y'all, we're going to witness and celebrate this very same grace uh, here in a few minutes in baptism. Before that, we're going to sing together as God's people and we're going to share in communion. And so here, I mean, here over the next 15 minutes or so, I, I want to appeal to us. We're not here at church um, to pass out nice spiritual cliches. 
We're not here to take our weekly spiritual vitamin. We are dealing right now with the great God of the whole universe who has joyfully chosen to condescend, to come down and to draw near in the sending of His Son. We sang that just a minute ago, that God has condescended. You realize this, y'all, when we condescend, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be condescending because that's one human being looking down on another equal human being. That is a sin. But when God condescends, that's the most glorious grace we could ever imagine or hope for because God truly is the greatest being, the righteous one. And if he comes down, that means that we become savable because he has chosen to bring us his mercy. Through his son, Jesus Christ, there is real grace today for real sinners. Total forgiveness, life and heart transformation. And so it's possible that we have missed this somehow. Or perhaps we've taken the Lord and his grace for granted. We've become dry and complacent. That's possible. It happens. Perhaps we've never really come to know Jesus at all. Not in this way. Not as Savior and Lord. Not as the one who forgives and refreshes. And so today, Peter is speaking not just to a crowd back when, but to you and me. When Peter says, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the grace that he's brought to us and is dying and rising again, we may now repent and return. We may receive him in all his mercy, grieving our sin, but entering into his grace because the debt has been canceled on the cross and life has been given to us now. God's refreshing and renewing life is ours to receive. He has raised up his servant Jesus and has sent him to us to turn every one of us from our wicked ways. What greater mercy could there be? And so to every one of us, Peter says, he has come for you. He has come for me. May we receive him so that our sins may be blotted out and that the refreshment of God's spirit may come once and for all. Y'all, I want to encourage us as we close that we might respond. And some of us, most of us perhaps, will respond just right where we sit and stand and sing. But I want to give us an opportunity. Our pastors, Evan and Aaron, will stand by the, by the doors in the back of the room. If at any point as I pray or sing, or we sing that, that the Lord should incline you to take one of them by the hand to ask for prayer, to talk, especially about what it means to trust Jesus, to receive his grace as Peter has so clearly uh, uh, shown us this morning. Um, that is our heart and our hope. If you, if you prefer to wait until after the service, come find me. We'll talk about it. We'd love nothing more than to help you to respond in the way that the Scripture calls us, to repent and return. And no matter what we are, where we've been, the grace is ours to receive. An eager, risen Savior, who will restore and redeem and rescue all who turn to him. Praise God. Let's pray.
Father, this morning, um, I pray you would help us to see uh, the light and the truth and the grace that is in Jesus Christ. A light, Lord, that would outshine the darkness that otherwise fills our minds and hearts. It may be today, Lord, that some of us have entered this room ignorant. Lord, we've never considered that we have a sin debt. We've never considered that our salvation must come from outside of us and it's something we cannot do ourselves. And today, Lord, we have heard the wonderful and gracious truth. It may be, Lord, that we're not ignorant at all. I know, I know the gospel. And yet I have not turned back to the Lord and His saving grace. And that today, even right now, that would change. And that, Lord, you would shine in our hearts your glory to save us. Show us the face of your Savior, your Son, Jesus. Lord, we have this wonderful privilege today. We are drawing breath. We are alive today. That, is, that all by itself is a gift. But, Lord, let it be that in this, this present moment, Lord, our living, our breathing, our being here, present together, is no accident. That, Lord, in your divine providence, just as you oversaw the, the death of your own son for our sake, Father, you have placed us in these chairs. You have given us the opportunity, the privilege, to hear the gospel and to turn to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you grant us such freedom this morning to know that we are forgiven and that, Lord, the life, the living water of your Spirit now floods the desert places that once defined us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. May it be ours, Lord, this morning as we sing in Christ's name. Amen.